0: Good morning again. I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me, uh, first of all, to Psalm 2. Now, I know we're in a series to the book of Acts, but I want to read this psalm. It's a short one to you uh, to set some background for what's going on in the passage that we're going to be looking at. Uh, Psalm 2. Now, as you turn there, uh, last time I had uh, some of the ushers pass out some pieces of paper uh, for the kids and... um, I, unfortunately, we don't have, uh, I don't have the, the paper with me of the one that we chose to feature uh, last time, uh, but it was one that Easton, um, Easton drew. Uh, I think it was Easton, right, Randy, the one I showed you? Yeah, so um, it, it, I, it just really stood out to me because last week, if you remember, I had preached on the different uh, names that Christians had for themselves and so he drew a picture of all these all these people, like dozens of people in the little box there, all of them having like little speech bubbles coming out of their, their mouths. And uh, I couldn't see everything that was written in there, but it was the different names that they were referring to themselves by. So those are, um, we'll be doing that again. And by the way, uh, Jay, do you have extra copies of those? So um, if you're, a, again, I said last time, if you're a kid or if you consider yourself a child, um, would you uh, just raise your hand? And if you didn't get one of those, you can gra- grab one, uh, kids if you need one and uh, if you turn that in to there's a little table below the tv in the foyer and if on your way out just just lay that there on the table um, and uh, we'll collect those and and our staff will decide which one to feature for next week and by the way if you need it back for some reason then put your name on it and uh, we'll get it back to you so that that will be uh, just uh, a way that we can keep engaged with what's going on really appreciate the children in here children and teenagers and uh, their attentiveness to the Word of God. So Psalm 2, uh, let me read this, and, and it will it'll make more sense to you when, you, when we look at uh, Acts 12, why we're looking at this passage. The psalmist writes this, Why do the nations rage, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. The Hebrew word there is Meshiach, meaning uh, the Christ, the anointed one, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That's what they're saying against God and his anointed king. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. That's Psalm 2. And it provides a fitting backdrop for what we're going to be looking at here in Acts 12. So you can turn again to Acts 12. And as you turn there, I'll just remind you we're going on a series through Acts. And Acts 12 brings us to the halfway point. Uh, or the major halfway breaking point here in the book of Acts. I don't know that it'll be precisely the halfway point in the sermon series, but it is at least a a halfway point in the narrative here. Um, I'm probably dating myself by saying this, but one of the first commercials I ever remember seeing was that Energizer Bunny commercial. Uh, you know the one that, that this this little pink bunny wearing sunglasses and beating a drum just keeps going and going. And it shows him in all kinds of environments, all kinds of circumstances, uh, going along a desert, uh, going across a uh, dinner table causing pandemonium and panic, knocking over dinner glasses and everything. And it just keeps going and going. And the, re- the reason why it's so effective is because uh, it, it's showing how persistent this is through all kinds of potential obstacles and and what luke is doing here in the book of acts has a similar effect it's showing how the message about jesus as the messiah is facing a variety of obstacles that could threaten to overthrow it or to make it wear down or lose momentum or or completely be obliterated. But through all kinds of circumstances, through all kinds of environments, the word about Jesus, that is that he is the anointed Messiah, the King, Savior, and Lord, that message about Jesus just keeps going and going. And that's why the the climax of this chapter here and the punchline, as it were, is in verse 24 where Luke says, but, that is in contrast to what was happening, but the word of God, that is God's message about Jesus the Messiah, that word increased and multiplied. So it wasn't just like a cute pink sunglasses wearing Energizer bunny. It was more like a snowball going down a steep hill gathering speed and momentum as it went. You just can't stop this message. It is truly a unstoppable. And that's been a theme throughout the book of Acts. That is, the work of Jesus continues across all kinds of boundaries through all kinds of circumstances. Now, Acts 12 in particular demonstrates in a powerful way how unstoppable the message about Jesus the Messiah truly is. In this chapter, Luke shows us his uh, brilliance and skill as a writer. It's a very well composed chapter. And I'll point out three reasons why. uh, This chapter uh, is, first of all, it's suspenseful. and Hopefully you picked it up as Jake was reading the passage, uh, particularly when uh, Peter's in prison and the angel wakes him up and says, okay, get dressed, and, and he comes from prison into the street, and, and there's this, there's a this suspense that's created by the blow-by-blow moves of, of Peter. It, but it's not only suspenseful, it's symmetrical. Uh, so it starts with who? Uh, the, the chapter starts with a king, Herod. Who does it end with? It ends with Herod. So you got Herod the king on both sides, uh, what is Herod doing at the beginning of the chapter? Herod is killing one of Jesus' followers, James. Okay, what is Herod doing in the end of the chapter? Herod is himself being killed as a divine punishment for his arrogant, um, his, his, his pride, his excessive pride, his ego. Okay, and, and that's actually what makes it satisfying. So this chapter here, it's suspenseful. It's symmetrical, and that's what makes it so satisfying. Um, and, and that is one of the reasons why we say this is a, a, a brilliantly executed uh, re- a chapter here in, in the book of, of Acts. Obviously, Luke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And, and through this this symmetrical, satisfying, and suspenseful chapter, Luke is showing us different circumstances through which the Word of God that is the message about Jesus continues triumph now I'm going to show you how this divides into three parts in this chapter uh, and I'm going to show you and uh, that the Word of God triumphs through hardship humor and hubris now at this point you're going to say okay that is just a complete uh, you, you've done the preacher thing you've you've found a word that starts with H that nobody knows about just to fit your alliteration but I <laughs> And I, I can easily see why I could see why I'd be accused of that. Uh, but if you if you know the meaning of the word hubris, and by the way, I hope I sent this out in all things Trinity. I hope some of you look this up because there is no better word to describe what happened to Herod at the end here. I mean, if you you can Google it at this moment, and you'll find the the definition is excessive pride. All right, but specifically in Greek tragedy, it's excessive pride against the gods leading to downfall, which is exactly uh, what happened to Herod. And so we're gonna see how the word about Jesus, the Messiah, triumphs through hardship, verses one through five, uh, humor. We're gonna see that in just a moment. That's verses six through 17, and then 18 through verse 23, the hubris of, of Herod. Uh, so first of all, the word of God triumphs through hardship you look at verse uh, chapter 12 verse 1 we read that Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church he begins to aggressively uh, posture himself against the Christians now what's different about this persecution this hardship from the hardship they had experienced earlier uh, was the fact that at this point in history Or prior to this point in in the the church's history, the hardship, the persecution that the Christians had experienced was primarily instigated by the, the Jewish religious leaders at the time. But now Herod sees persecuting Christians as a convenient political strategy. And the reason why in the context is Herod and his family, they were very unpopular with the Jewish people. And so Herod, as an astute politician, was eager to do really anything to try to win the favor of of the Jews at this time. And when he saw that trying to quell this massive uprising that would become to be called Christianity, trying to quell this, And having James executed, it also increased his popularity as a king. He thought, oh, I think I might do more of this stuff. And so he takes Peter and he puts him in prison. It just so happened the timing of this was such that he could not execute Peter during a a holy week, uh, the time of the Passover celebration, which is why Peter, uh, humanly speaking, hadn't been killed to this point. He was just imprisoned. And so we see the hardship that the church is experiencing due not just to the rabid anger of the religious leaders at the time, but now due to the political strategy of the reigning king. Now, as we look at this hardship, we can see why this is both perplexing and potentially devastating for the church, perplexing for this reason. And this is one of the reasons why all hardship can be perplexing, uh, to, to not only at that time, but but to us as well. Why James and not somebody else? Why James and not Peter? Why James and not John? Why James and not Matthias, one of the, the other uh, uh, guy who was elected to be the apostle there at the beginning of the book of Acts? I mean, why does hardship come to some people and not to others? were immediately confronted with the perplexity, the mysteries of God's orchestrating all events. But it was not only perplexing, but it was also potentially devastating. Here we have the Christians faced, not just with the religious leaders who, yes, they were powerful, but, but now it's Herod the king. I mean, now they're being opposed on this level. Now, the, the lesson that we, that we glean from this section, just as early on in the chapter, is something that we have already been learning throughout the book of Acts, and that is what it means to follow Jesus is to suffer. Like suffering is bound up with following Jesus. Jesus said this. He already told his disciples in advance. He said, if they treat the master like they treat me, surely they're gonna treat those who follow the master you can expect in following Jesus to face very difficult hardship, to face suffering and persecution. I think, my friends, this is something that we often fail to come to grips with as we look at our own, our own commitment to Jesus. We, we pledge our allegiance to Jesus, and we, we rarely consider that pl- we are pledging our allegiance to someone who is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I mean, can we expect a life of ease if we are following one whose obedience to God led him to the cross? This is Peter's logic. In his letter, he said, you should prepare for suffering because Jesus has suffered. You need to arm yourselves with this same mindset. Are we prepared to suffer? Are we prepared to suffer this kind of hardship Why, let me just explore this question a little bit, why would Luke include so much about suffering in this book about Christianity to someone that might not have even been a Christian, or might have been someone who was just seeking to understand more about Christianity, Theophilus, why would he say suffering is part of it? I mean, if you wanted to commend the Christian faith, surely he would have said something like this. Hey, if you follow Jesus, your life is gonna be great. Your relational issues are gonna be all unknotted. Uh, you're gonna have uh, a lot of wealth and prosperity. Come on, jump on the Jesus bandwagon. I mean, you think that he would have said something like this, but instead he says, I mean, we hardly get three chapters in and the the leaders of Christianity are getting arrested and beaten, and pretty soon, chapter 7, one of the the deacons, uh, Stephen, he gets stoned to death, and now here in chapter 12, James is executed. Why suffering? Well, as I said, first of all, because suffering is bound up in what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But there are other reasons as well. Suffering is a way that we say we are serving a god who is sovereign in our suffering and by this here's what i mean when a christian suffers patiently when a christian suffers joyfully that is one way of saying suffering is not meaningless it is guided by god's good hand and the sufferings of jesus prove that there can be a kind of suffering that is not just pointless and perplexing, but there can be a kind of suffering that leads to glory because God is sovereign over my suffering. That's the point here. That's why when Christians face suffering, they don't face suffering alone. They face suffering with Jesus, and they face suffering that is not meaningless. It has a purpose. Why? Because it's guided by God's good hand. Do you believe that? We just heard from, from Dean and he was talking about the suffering that he and Nancy experienced. And, 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 and many of you can bear witness to the fact that in your suffering, you have seen that it is not pointless, that God is leading you through dark valleys, yet valleys that lead to, to, to gems in your relationship with God that you could not have known otherwise. But suffering is also a way to proclaim that Jesus is worth it. I mean, how do you know the worth of something if not by measuring what people are willing to give up to get it? I mean, that's basic, that's basic economics. The value of something, I mean, look at, look at how much we're willing to pay for gas. I mean, the value of something it can be measured by how much someone is willing to part to sell, with, with, with what they have to say, this, this thing is more valuable than what I have, so I'm willing to give it up. When people are willing to suffer for Jesus, it's one way of proclaiming that Jesus' worth is inestimable, it's, it's immeasurable, it's, it's fathomless, it's parting with, parting with comfort and parting with, with, even, uh, with, with wealth and all these kinds of things. There's nothing in comparison with who Jesus is. There's nothing like suffering to commend the great worth of Christ. It's a way that we proclaim that Jesus is worth it. It's a way that we make our hope visible, our log, love for Jesus concrete. I, my friends, I should ask us this question, are we prepared for suffering, not just the kinds of suffering that, tend, that face every, anybody and everybody, but suffering unique to being a Christian? Some of you may be familiar with the name Richard Vermbrand. He was uh, imprisoned for many years and tortured uh, for, as a Christian in Romania under communist rule. And uh, he, he wrote this um, commenting on the, the, Peter's first letter about suffering. he said, "What shall we do about these tortures? Will we be able to bear them?" If I do not bear them, I put in prison another 50 or 60 men whom I know because that is what the communists wish wish from me, to betray those around me. And here comes the great need for the role of preparation for suffering, which must start now. And this is something that he says that I think that all of us as Western Christians living in a very comfortable environment must consider. It is too difficult to prepare yourself for it when the communists have put you in prison. He says, we must prepare for suffering now. He says, I remember my last confirmation class before I left Romania. That's a class he taught to children. I took a group of 10 to 15 boys and girls on a Sunday morning, not to a church but to the zoo. Before the cage of lions I told them, your forefathers in faith were thrown before such wild beasts for their faith. Know that you will also have to suffer. You may not be thrown before lions but you will have to do with men who had who would be much worse than lions? Decide here and now if you wish to pledge allegiance to Christ. They had tears in their eyes, he writes, when they said yes. I think the thing that we often worry about is will we have, will we be able to, to withstand and, and undergo such persecution when the time comes? But the question is, am I, am I finding my satisfaction in Christ now? Am I living for Jesus not then but now? That's the question we must consider. But the thing that we learn from this passage is that the word about Jesus the Messiah triumphed even through hardship. Why? Because it's a message about Jesus the Messiah. It is a message about the one who did overcome sin and death on our behalf. So that is the thing that James, who was executed at the hands of Herod, would have said, of course it's worth it the word of god the message about jesus the messiah triumphs through hardship now this sounds so grand so noble so hard so serious that it is quite surprising to us that the next section of this chapter is woven with humor did you pick up on that that on the reading of this what the, the the whole thing is funny. I mean, we're, we're reading it. I was look, I was watching some of your faces as it was being read. Some of you were smiling. Some of you picked up the humor. So, for some of us, it just kind of went went over our heads that this is actually Luke is is actually weaving some humor into this section. Where where do we see the humor? I want to I want to ask where do we see the humor and why? Why in in the context of something so. Uh, potentially devastating and so difficult and so serious would there be this section that is so woven with humor? Well first of all, just think about th- think about the fact that Luke got his sources from eyewitnesses. they're telling him what happened and they're telling him with a smile on their face and a twinkle in their eye Peter's like, here's what happened. The angel had to like shove me awake and I thought I was dreaming. And you know, I'm such a hard sleeper. I mean, for crying out loud, I was in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus when he was praying, and I kept falling asleep. And, and he wakes me up, and then he has to tell me how to get dressed. Did you pick up on this? Get dressed, Peter. Okay, now your shoes, now your coat. Some commentators have said it it's almost sounds like a, a parent getting, getting her child ready for the day. Get out of bed get dressed put your shoes on now get your coat on you, you see the sequence here it's like the angel has to has to walk him through this step by step and peter's a grown man here's a hard sleeper he can't believe he can't uh, believe that this is actually happening to him he has to be instructed how to get dressed and he in verse 9 it says he did not know that what was to be done by the angel was real but thought he was seeing a vision, and it wasn't until he got past this one street and then another that he realized, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting. Now, the humor doesn't stop there. It gets, it gets even more intense, it escalates. Because when Peter finally makes, its, it makes his way to the house of Mary, the mother of John, they're having a prayer meeting for him. And, and they're, in, they're kneeling in, in solemn, serious prayer. Lord, please rescue Peter. Please do a miracle. Open the gates. Let him walk right past the guards. Lord, even bring him right to the gate here at our house. And there's a knock at the door. And this servant girl named Rhoda, who's probably a teenager, gets it. And she, she is so excited to, to hear Peter's voice at the gate that she runs back into the prayer meeting and forgets to leave him out on the street where he could be arrested by soldiers who are undoubtedly looking for him by now. She says, she says, he interrupts the prayer meeting, and these people are saying, Lord, please, please, rescue Peter. Bring him right here. Open the gates uh, uh, for him. And Rhoda says, says, Peter's at the gate. Rhoda, you're crazy. What they were praying for, they couldn't even believe. She says, Peter is really at the gate. They're saying, Rhoda, you're crazy you're out of your mind it must be his angel and by the way tell whoever's knocking at the gate to shut up we're trying to have a prayer meeting in here you you see what's going on well Luke is including these these details which are intended to bring out the humor of the situation now the question I want to ask is why why is there humor here and by the way, I've never had a main point in my sermon devoted to humor. This is very un- before. This is very unusual. But it, but I couldn't get away from the fact that it is right here in the text, and something that we should give attention to. And actually, that's why I had us read together Psalm 2 at the beginning of this this message, because Psalm 2 brings out the same three elements that we see here in Acts chapter 12. We see hardship. Why do the nations rage? Why do the heathen imagine a vain thing? They're trying to uh, assert themselves against God and against his anointed. They're trying to stamp out the message that God has installed his king, his anointed one, who will reign over all, who has conquered sin and death. And these, these kings, they've taken counsel together to try to overthrow this. And part of their attempt to overthrow it is by killing those who are preaching it. That's hardship. But what is God doing in the heavens? When these people are in their pride, are trying to overthrow God's anointed one, trying to stamp out the message about Jesus the Messiah, what does Psalm 2 say God is doing? He who sits in the heavens, what? He laughs. He laughs because he knows that no effort to overthrow his Messiah, his King, no effort will succeed. This is a a laughter, not of scorn, not of ridicule. It's a laughter of joyful triumph. We know the end of the story. And the end of the story is that our God reigns Salvation is of the Lord. The message about Jesus, the Messiah, has not been extinguished and it will not be stamped out. And so, what, is that? what does that confidence do for us? It allows us to look at our circumstances not with a sense of foreboding and gloom, but of joy, even in the middle of hardship. Humor belongs to God. God is a joyful God. If you think that God doesn't understand humor, just watch a few videos on, of, of penguins. I mean, and, and you'll see, this is like I was I was showing my kids some of this this past week, these sophisticated looking, they, they look like guys in suits, and they're waddling around. And sometimes they slip on the ice, just like we do here in New Hampshire in the winter. And sometimes they do all kinds of crazy things. I mean, God has put humor into this, into this world. Humor belongs to God. I love this, this quote from uh, one of my favorite preachers, C.H. Uh, Spurgeon. He said this, I do believe in my heart that there may be as much holiness in a laugh as in a cry, and that sometimes to laugh is the better thing of the two. For I may weep and be murmuring and repining and thinking all sorts of bitter thoughts against God, while at another time I may laugh the laugh of sarcasm against sin and so evince a holy earnestness in the defense of the truth. He says, I don't know why ridicule is to be given up to Satan as a weapon to be used against us and not to be employed by us as a weapon against him. I will venture to affirm, and here's where he makes his historical observation, which I think is very true, I will venture to affirm that the Reformation owed almost as much to the sense of the ridiculous in human nature as to anything else and that those humorous squibs and caricatures that were issued by the friends of Luther did more to open the eyes of Germany to the abominations of the priesthood than the more solid and ponderous arguments." There's, there is humor belongs to God the reason why there is humor woven into this section of scripture is because the Christians here knew what the end of the story was going to be they knew the end the end God would triumph I like this verse from, the, from Proverbs that says laughter is like a, 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 a cheerful heart is like medicine it's like medicine. Uh, la- laughter, I like to think, uh, and, and a cheerful heart is is like medicine in that in our in our lives, we, we end up consuming so much bread of sorrow. And laughter is kind of like the pepo, Pepto-Bismol to keep you from getting a stomach ache. <laughs> or it's kind of like this. It, it's laughter and humor for the Christian, because humor belongs to God, is a way that we can puncture the gloomy clouds of despair and see that there is light shining beyond in a way that sometimes surprises us. And that's why I think that laughter, good, godly laughter, is such an important thing for us as Christians. Now, as with anything else in life, humor anything else good in life. Humor has been seized by God's enemies and brandished as a weapon that hurts people. I mean, humor can be used in bad ways. Humor can be used to laugh at things that are sacred, uh, to trivialize things that are sinful. I mean, humor can be used to hurt people. But if humor really belongs to God, it ought not be used for any of these things. And let us remember this. I think of the many children in this room at this time. You know, for children, children love to laugh. And I like to laugh along with my kids. We have a good time laughing together. There's there some good, godly fun, godly laughter that can happen. But sometimes, my young friends and our older friends know this, humor can be used to hurt people deeply. If humor belongs to God, then it should never be used for something that God does not want us to use it for. Humor can be used to help, but it also can be used to hurt. My young friends, I hope you never use jokes and humor to tear people down, to make fun of people. That's not what God intended it for. Humor belongs to God. We should use it for God's purposes. That's why, and for all of us, I believe that humor often um, it, it emerges at the intersection of three things. Holiness, humility, and hope. Holiness, because without holiness, you won't know the, li- the right things to laugh at. You'll end up laughing at things that ought not to be laughed at, or failing to laugh at things that you could laugh at. In order to be able to ha- be healthy emotionally, you must know what to mourn over. Jesus said, after all, in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who mourn. If you don't know what is truly worth mourning over, you'll be confused about what you can laugh at too. And it exists not only at the intersection of holiness, but also at the intersection of humility. There's something about someone who takes themselves way too seriously. They lose so much joy in life. It's evident that the people here in the book of Acts, the Christians here who reported to Luke, hey, write this down. We didn't even believe that, that, that Peter had been, had been escaped from prison. We were praying, and, and, and Peter, Peter was right at the gate, and we didn't believe that he, he was. They didn't take themselves seriously. What a contrast to the next character that we encounter in in this chapter, Herod, who took himself so seriously when people said, it's the voice of a God and not of a man. He, He just took all that honor into himself. He took himself so seriously in contrast to that. The servants of Jesus, who prioritized the message about Jesus, the Messiah, had the humility to see the humor in the situation, even at their own expense. And it exists at the intersection of of, uh, holiness, humility, and hope. Hope, because you know the end of the story. You know how it's gonna work out. He who sits in the heavens laughs. You notice that the end of the story is not the the, the execution of James. The end of the story is not us being persecuted. The end of the story is Jesus triumphing as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's the end of the story, and we know it. It's kind of like if you watch a really good movie, and and in the movie, the villain is laughing maliciously as if he's gonna get the upper hand, and he says all kinds of things like, I'm gonna win, I'm gonna put you down, and and if you know the end of the story, you know it's funny because you know it's never gonna happen. I hope as Christians, I hope that we can live well and laugh well. Why, not just as a frivolous attempt to distract ourselves from the suffering of life, but because humor belongs to God. And may we grow in holiness and humility and hope. But we also see in this passage, not only that the word about Jesus the Messiah, it triumphs, it, it, the word about Jesus the Messiah, it frees us to see godly humor in this, in this situation. But we see the word about Jesus as the Messiah as the lord as the king as the savior also triumphs over human pride or hubris this overweening arrogance that seeks to exalt oneself against god and we see this here in the latter part of the chapter now beginning in verse uh, 20, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. There seemed to be some rift uh, between them, and they are seeking to placate him. And so there's a, there's a meeting, and he gives this amazing speech. Now we have the advantage of another historical account written by Josephus that tells us about the exact same incident. And Josephus adds some details that Luke doesn't, and Luke adds some details that Josephus doesn't. And, and together we see uh, it, it makes perfect sense. Josephus tells us that on this this, uh, this speech, this oration took place at dawn. He tells us that the sun was just rising and that Josephus was wearing, uh, Herod was wearing this uh, coat uh, woven with silver. is pure silver so it was just gleaming in the rising sun and when the sun rose and herod is facing the east and the sun uh strikes this this silver garment it just reflects back into the eyes of the audience and they're just kind of like amazed And and there he's he's uh he's standing there and and he starts giving this speech now i think they had some some serious motives because they wanted to placate his anger for saying it's the voice of a god and not of a man but whatever their reasons and whatever his thoughts, the Bible tells us clearly that he did not give God the glory. Luke tells us that he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Josephus tells us uh, how much time went uh, uh, past between the speech that he gave and, and when he actually died, which was about five days. Now, when we look at the, the, the text here, he's eaten by worms. What most people conclude, which is most likely to happen, is that this refers to intestinal roundworms, parasite. It was very common. It's actually common today, but it was especially common uh, in, in that day. And in extreme cases, they can multiply and cause intestinal blockage. Look this up at your own peril, okay? I'm just telling you, this is what the text says. Uh, I, I, it took me a little, little while to recover from this in my research this past week, um, but, but this is what happened. And Josephus tells us that, that at the moment of, of after he delivered his oration, he was struck with uh, convulsive pain uh, in his abdomen. And he was able to f- say a few more words, but he was in such pain and that he died uh, five days later, a, a ter- terrible death. What is happening here? And this probably happened just several years later, but what Luke is doing is so apparent, it's so deliberate. He's contrasting the words of a man who took upon himself the glory of God with the word of God that despite the hubris, the overweening, excessive arrogance of humans, it continues. Why do the nations rage? Why do they imagine a vain thing? Why do their kings take counsel together and seek to overthrow the Lord and his anointed? They do it all in vain because God has set his anointed one in the heavens and he will not be overthrown. There is no overthrowing Jesus as the Messiah and the message about Jesus, it continues to triumph and it goes on and on. It, It extended as Herod was breathing his last. As Herod was con- was convulsing in bed because of his demise, the word of God was continuing to spread all over the Roman Empire. It was unstoppable. Why is such a message unstoppable? Why is the message about Jesus the Messiah unstoppable? It is because it is a true message that is the best message anybody could ever hear and believe. It is the message that although you and I have so corrupted ourselves because of our sin, Jesus, the perfect human being who lived the flawless life that every single one of us should have lived, suffered the death that each one of us deserve in our place so that if we trust in him, we can be saved. That's why that message triumphs. It's the best message that can ever be heard. That's why that message triumphs even through our hardship because it tells us of a Savior who is not only worth living for but suffering and dying for. It is because of the message of Jesus the Messiah that we are liberated to see the humor in our in our circumstances and it is the message about Jesus the Messiah that is exalted all over the over the pride of human beings. It is a message that is unstoppable. It is a message that we must believe and believe more deeply. Would you bow your heads with me and we'll pray. While your head is bowed and your eyes are closed. My friend, do you believe that message? The message, as I said over and over again, the message of Christianity at the very heart of the Christian faith is not what you can do to get to God, but what God has done to bring salvation to you. That's why the response to this message is to believe it. And when you believe it, when you deeply believe it, yes, it will give you the strength. He will give you the strength to endure hardship for Jesus. He will allow you the freedom to see that in the end, he will triumph over everything. In a moment, we're going to sing the perfect wisdom of our God we'll see how wise God is is in all his dealings but for a moment would you take a time to to talk back talk to God about what you need to talk to him about maybe there's something you need to confess maybe there's something that you need to ask God God's forgiveness for or commit to God would you do it in the quietness of these moments Our Father, I thank you that we can say, as we will sing, that every strand of sorrow has a place in your tapestry of grace. Father, I pray that you would help all of us to respond in faith and obedience to your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name.